begun the last few weeks, Eric has been walking us through the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to move into chapter 2 this morning in considering what's... And this was my reward for 
Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Father, we do ask for the guidance of your spirit as we come to your word. Lord, we want to meet you here. We want to receive, just as you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, we want to meet him and walk with him here in the pages of scripture. So that when we walk out this morning, we will be changed, we will be transformed, we walk out with hope and not despair. Lord, lead us in that because of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now there's a few things that we see as Solomon, who Eric reminds us, calls himself the Koheleth, the teacher, the preacher, here in Ecclesiastes. Uh, he's going to show us. First, he's going to show us a dialogue with his own heart. And then he's going to show us his pursuit of pleasure in this world. He's looking for pleasure in this world to find fulfillment there. And then he's going to give us the verdict on his pursuit of pleasure. So those three things are what we're going to look at this morning. The dialogue, the pursuit, and the verdict on his pursuit of pleasure. So let's take those one at a time and consider what Solomon has to tell us here this morning. He starts off in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, he says, speaking to his own heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, he says. But behold, this was also vanity. This reminds us that this is a hard matter for us to test ourselves here today, to look into our own hearts as we consider uh, the world of pleasure that surrounds us. Sometimes, I think when we talk about pleasure in church, our tendency is to jump into kind of blaming mode or finger-pointing mode. All the sinful pleasures out in the world, maybe you've heard sermons directed in that way. Solomon is inviting us to an investigation of our own hearts as we live in this world. But he says, I told my own heart, enjoy yourself. So this is the part of the movie, as we come in Ecclesiastes, where, where the nerd throws his glasses out the window and starts dancing on the table. This is that part of the movie. Or where the billionaire, who's been a serious and dedicated businessman all his life, starts to spend all his money just because he can, right? That's, that's this part of the movie here, as he begins to list his pursuits. And there's a, there's a range, right? There's many facets of the way Solomon pursues pleasure in the world. And he walks us through these. There's a range, everything from what we might call dark comedy, or maybe is fulfilling his sexual appetites, all the way to cultivating a taste for fine art and being a patron of the arts himself. So a wide range of pleasurable pursuits here. He tests laughter. He calls it, he calls it madness. The pleasure of random and hysterical pleasure in this world. My children show me memes that I do not understand. <laughs> but they fall off their chairs laughing at these pictures on their phones, and they said that's, I think that's something like what Solomon is talking about here. The madness and hilarity, there's a pleasure. There's a pleasure in that, even 
don't always get the joke. There's a pleasure in wine, he says, cultivating, uh, being a connoisseur, and maybe being known as a connoisseur of wine, right? There's a, there's a pleasure in developing your taste in that regard, and, and, and those of you who are more knowledgeable, certainly, than I am when it comes to wines, uh, you know the pleasure of someone coming to get your opinion. I'm going to serve this for dinner, and what would be a good wine to pair with that? There's a pleasure in that knowledge, right? You've cultivated that understanding. Solomon said he built houses. So there's this idea of pleasure of, of design, of having a vision of something, and then being able to bring that vision to reality, right? I built that house. Some of you in this room have, have experienced that pleasure, the pleasure of bringing something concrete into the world. He planted vineyards, experienced the pleasure of growing fruitfulness. He made gardens and parks. He created uh, an escape, a place of respite in a very hot and dry climate, a place where he could, where he could relax. He made pools and aqueducts to, uh, to furnish all those trees with water. So the design and delivery of resources, what we might call logistics today. Solomon did that on a level that nobody before him had done. He says, I bought slaves, and then slaves were also born into my house. We probably, our first reaction is to recoil at this, but for Solomon, this was the pleasure of multiplying his own efforts in the world because he had this huge workforce of personnel Whatever whim, they were at his beck and call to accomplish. So the multiplication of his efforts in this world, and some of you who built a business, who have a staff working for you, you've known the pleasure of multiplying your efforts as you work for the good of people around you. Solomon said, I possess herds and flocks, the pleasure here of overflowing provision. He acquired silver and gold through the establishment of trade and the establishment of taxes, he became very wealthy. He was cultivating resources, developing fiscal resources, developing business and the, and the, and the, the general welfare of his whole nation. Certainly pleasure in that. He says, I acquired singers, both men and women. He contributed to and enjoyed the arts. All kinds of fine arts were being developed and cultivated during his reign as king. And then we all know one of the things Solomon is famous for, he's reported in 1 Kings as having 700 wives and 300 concubines, what he calls the delight of men. This was very much inbounds for Solomon as the king. It was, a, it was a not sinful, although it led him into problems we read about. And I would discourage you if you're thinking about getting and going out and looking for a concubine. The New Testament discourages that. Not a good idea. It would be sin for us to go out and do that. We believe in the one man, one woman plan. That's, that's the New Testament's plan for us in marriage. But, but for Solomon, this was not sin. This was an overflow of his wealth. It was a, a picture of the greatness of him as a king that... Was he wealthy enough to have three wives and 
Solomon's time would have looked at that and said, this is a great king. He is overflowing with wealth. To be able to provide for that kind of a household, as well as, you could say he was a man of experience when it came to his sexual pursuits. That's all I'm going to say about that. In all these things, we can see that Solomon had the pleasure also of pursuing new pleasures, right? There's an excitement and a thrill when you start off on a new adventure, a new area of pursuit, right? You're going to take a cooking class, or you're going to take a pottery class, or you're going to, there's a thrill as you step into trying something new. And this was something that Solomon experienced over and over. And he let us know, not just in a passive way, he worked hard at pleasure. He was dedicated over a span of years to these things. He worked hard at this. And so he gives us his verdict in verses 9 through 11. Let me read that for you one more time. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil, that I considered all that my hands had done in the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So even though he became great, he didn't lose his mind in doing this, his wisdom remained with him. He pursued this pleasure without restraint. There was nothing that his heart desired that he didn't pursue. And yet he says, it was all vanity, a striving of wind, striving after the wind. Now, we may miss the surprise of this, because we've read Ecclesiastes, we've read Scripture, we know the trouble Solomon got into later in his life. But consider the connoisseur, the architect, the environmental developer, the innovator, the titan of business. Consider all that we just walked through. Externally, we would look at this and we would say, this is a life well lived. Right? And I, I think that's what Solomon's trying to get across. On Solomon's bucket list, every box was checked. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's communicating. And yet internally, Solomon reports, after all that experience, every kind of experience, it was a vapor. It was vanity. It was meaningless, he said, because of the shortness of this life. Death is the great reckoning. As, as Solomon looks to give us a verdict on all this pleasure that he pursues, death is the great reckoning which renders everything in this world meaningless, he says. We get the same moment of insight when we see the car drive by with the bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins, right? We smile because we get the joke that the one with the most toys still dies. That's what Solomon is saying here. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. So then, what do we take with us from this? What do we take with us this morning from Solomon's dialogue with his own heart?
expend this kind of energy and this kind of pursuit, even as we consider his verdict. It's interesting, one thing I think that we can take with us that really connected with me this week as I was reading and praying in this text, and maybe you picked up on this connection to creation in the center of the passage. Let me read chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 one more time and put it on the screen. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the growing fruit trees. It's interesting, commentators um, notice that Solomon is making a, a, a conscious connection here to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what was it that happened in Genesis chapters 1 and 2? We have the creation account. God creating the heavens and the earth, where God made an expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and God gathered the waters together and made dry land appear, and he made the earth sprout vegetation, we read, plants, trees bearing fruit, and then in Genesis 2, where God planted a garden in Eden, and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and God put the man in the garden to work it and cultivate it. Solomon here is styling himself as a kind of a mini-me creator. Solomon is recreating Eden. One difference between the original Eden and Solomon's Eden is in Solomon's Eden there was no forbidden fruit. He wanted to create an Eden where everything was allowed, everything was accessible. And this resonates with me, and I hope that it resonates with you, because this is what, we do something very similar, right? I don't know if, if you do it in your yard, I don't know if you do it in your living room with the pillows you put just so, I don't know if you do it on your Instagram or with your retirement portfolio, maybe it's your garage. Your tools are right where you left them, and they're ready for your next project, right? But we, we like to little curated pieces of paradise that give us, that's where we find our identity and our security and our purpose, oftentimes in this world. Not to the extent that Solomon did it, but I think you can identify with this desire to, to create order, right? to create purpose. The problem is that we're often tempted to live for these things. We're tempted to live for the happiness that we find in our life on this earth. We're tempted to be utilitarian. Now, this week I was doing a little bit of reading about utilitarianism. I don't know all there is to know about that. And when I think of the word utilitarian, I tend to think of, like, doing my duty, right? But actually, I was interested to find that the father of utilitarianism was writing, his name was Jeremy Bentham, around... 1780s, he, he defined utilitarianism in this way. He said, nature has placed mankind under the govern governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for these two alone, pain and pleasure, to point out to us what we must do in this life. So for Jeremy Bentham, the idea of utilitarianism then is to do everything to maximize our happiness and our pleasure in this world. Starting to sound 
kind of familiar, kind of like where we live, right, as Americans in 2022, to minimize suffering and pain and to maximize happiness and pleasure in this world. And he said, in fact, it's the greatest happiness, it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people that is the measure of right and wrong. Now, in case you missed it, I do want to make it explicit. Jeremy Bentham was an atheist. He did not believe in God. And so he looked to nature, nature's course, to reveal that there's really two teachers in this world, pain and pleasure. We learn to avoid pain. We learn to pursue pleasure. And maybe your mind, if you've done any thinking about this or reading, maybe your mind goes to hedonism. That is a, a plan to live your life for all the pleasures in this world. You give yourself to every pleasure and every debauchery because pleasure, happiness, your own personal private happiness, the way you define it according to your own avoidance of pain and pursuit of pleasure, is the only measure of right and wrong in this world. I don't know if you identify with, with the hedonistic outlook on life. Maybe you do. Maybe there's someone here who that, ident that resonates with you as I describe that. That's one of the ways that this utilitarian philosophy works its way out. But maybe a more familiar way, at least I think for me, a more familiar way this works its, its way out is that we live in a consumer culture, right? We live in a consumer culture where we are inundated by messages to find our happiness and avoid pain in this world, right? These are called advertisements. I, I read this week that you were exposed to a minimum of 4,000 advertisements a day. That seemed a little high to me when I thought about my own life, but then I started looking around. So for instance, yesterday I was filling my car up with gas, which we won't even talk about that, that's a whole other story. I was filling my car up with gas, I was standing at the gas pump and there were three ads for me to get a Wawa card because then I'll get discount on my gas and discount on my coffee. And then there was another ad on top of the fuel pump for Wawa coffee to make sure that I get my Wawa coffee. And I think there was something about Wawa fuel points, so you can count two ads and one there. So that was four ads on the fuel pump. Then I noticed there were actually like 10 or 12 little tiny credit card symbols of different credit card companies who all cooperate with Wawa. You can get their cards to buy your gas and your coffee at Wawa. There were like 12 of those little advertisements. American Express, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and then a bunch, Diners Club or something. I never heard of some of the other ones, you know? Those, those are little tiny advertisements. And then on the video screen, while my gas is filling my car, there were like five advertisements that played while I was standing there. So I had like 21 ads in the space of how long does it take you to fill your car with gas, right? 21 ads, and that didn't even count the ads that were like painted or plastered on the windows of Wawa for my coffee and my donuts and my breakfast sandwich and everything else, right? And that was just me standing, filling up my gas tank. That wasn't even me getting on my phone. I checked the news this morning. I, I subscribed to the Pilot online. I have their little app. And this morning, there's I go to check the news, and there's a banner across the top with one ad for Best Buy, and then you scroll down, and there's another, there's some kind of vacation ad down below that, and that's just in the middle of news stories, let alone when you get online on the web, let alone when you're trying to watch a TV show, right, or an 
NBA game and how many commercials, so maybe it is 4,000. Maybe 4,000 is a conservative number of the, of the amount of ads. So I, one of the dangers in this passage that I think we're being warned about is this hedonistic pursuit. But there's a more subtle danger, I think, that maybe is more common. Subtle in the same way that the ocean is subtle for the fish who swim in it. Because we're surrounded by it, and so we don't tend to give it any thought. That is, all these advertisers trying to convince us that we live in some kind of particular hell on this earth, and their product is going to lead us into a, some kind of particular heaven on this earth, a paradise for us. You're not sleeping. You're in a no-sleeping hell. And if you take our pill, you're going to look how peaceful and wonderful this person is sleeping in this bathed in this perfect blue light under a full moon. They're just enjoying it, right? They're in heaven right now, right? You're in a, and I can say this because a person of Swedish descent, I've been on the paler side of tan most of my life, right? Sunscreen is a way of life for me. You may be living right now, thinking about going to the beach this summer in a pale hell. Pale skin hell. But there are tanning beds. And as you drive by, you can see on their windows, they have advertising inviting you to a bronze heaven. They're going to they're gonna save your summer. You're going to have a paradise summer as you become like these godlike creatures, right? These angelic beings who are enjoying their tans so much. There's, there's ads within ads, right? Jimmy Kimmel is going to be on Late Night Tonight, so that's an advertisement. And then he's going to have special guest Tom Cruise. Why is he having Tom Cruise? Well, because Tom Cruise has a movie that he wants you to come see. So that's an ad within an ad. Or then, Adam, my daughter was helping me on, on this one. We were in Kava the other day. And Kava's, obviously, they've got their, their store full of advertising for all the things that they sell, the wonderful food they sell. But there's this girl on the wall. I didn't know who that was. She seemed like heavy eyeshadow and strange pose. And, and I, was in, I was informed by Adam, this was Emma Chamberlain, who is a, a TikTok influencer, I guess. And if you follow her on Instagram or on TikTok, then you will buy into all the things that Emma Chamberlain, this person I've never heard of, but now is on the wall of Kava, inviting me to a life of happiness, I guess, of, of what she considers good in this world. So this is the subtle temptation that I think can be so dangerous. That, that over and over, I'm not saying Emma Chamberlain, I'm not saying that. But over and over, we hear 4,000 times a day we're encouraged to find our happiness, to find heaven and avoid hell in this world. How many times a day, how many times a week, are you reminded that neither heaven nor hell are in this world? There is a heaven that is greater than all the promises of this world, and there is a hell that is more terrible. And nothing on this earth compares to either one. This is something so intrinsic, like the water we swim in in our culture. 
as consumers, as people who are seeking our happiness in this world. And so we're invited then to stop trying to find our happiness in this world. It's interesting, one time a man came to Jesus. A man came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance that we received from my father with me. And Jesus said, whoa, who appointed me judge over the two of you? Now, what was the paradise that this man was seeking and what was the hell he was trying to avoid? Some of you have been in this position. He had been dreaming of his father's inheritance for how many years? Not that he wanted his father to die, of course, no. But he had been dreaming of his father's stuff. And now it looked like he wasn't going to get in. This was the hell he'd been trying to avoid. Jesus said this to him. Let me read it for you, starting in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now stop right there. We would say this was a responsible person. Right? He has, he's, he's got his retirement fund built up, but where is his hope? This is what Jesus is getting at, right? Where is his heaven? It's not in heaven heaven, it's in the little fantasy heaven that he's trying to build for himself on this earth. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so we're being invited here in this passage in Ecclesiastes and by Jesus to test our hearts to live our lives in this world not merely for our own happiness but to serve God's purpose and to serve the people around us in this world even enduring the pain and the suffering of this world because of God's purpose and for his glory right? that's what we're being invited to, to not live in despair, to remember that life began in paradise. Life began in a, in a garden, in a paradise, where Adam and Eve were tempted, you'll be like God if you eat this forbidden fruit. And the temptation, when you think of it in that context, you realize that Intrinsic to that temptation was an accusation that this God who had created their lives, who had created this garden, this world, who had created everything, this God was not generous, he was actually stingy. This God was withholding something from them. You'll be like God. They were already like God. They were made in the image of God. But they were tempted to think this God is stingy, not generous. He's withholding, not giving life to us. And that paradise was lost. And 
and this creation entered into frustration, into futility, right, into fruitlessness, which is what we're exploring here in Ecclesiastes, right? And yet the God who created us did not abandon us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came from paradise, who came from where he had everything and entered into this world, entered into the futility and the frustration and the meaninglessness of this world. He came not, he said, to be served, but to serve. It's interesting to, to think about this, this avoidance of pain and this pursuit of pleasure. Jesus must not have gotten that memo because he endured pain, right? The Apostles' Creed, we've pointed this out in the past, summarizes the life of Christ between his birth and his death as suffered. Jesus entered into the suffering of this world, not very utilitarian, Jesus. You didn't get the memo about avoiding pain and pursuing your own pleasure in this world. There was a friend of Jeremy Bentham named William Godwin, who's also a utilitarian. Um, he did this thought experiment because in the utilitarian life, as you're avoiding pain, as you're pursuing pleasure, you have to make choices. Because inevitably, it's not just cut and dried about, well, this hurts and this feels good, so I'll do this. Oftentimes, it's two pleasures, two things that will make me happy. But which one will make me the happiest? Or, or maybe there's happiness that will benefit one person, and there's a happiness that will benefit ten people. Right? The old, the old, remember the story about you're on a, overlooking a train track and there's a train coming? And it's going to crash. There's 50 people on board, but your son is on the tracks. Do you let the plane crash and save your son, or do you let the train hit your son? This is a utilitarian question. It was, it was this, it was this um, friend of Jeremy Bentham who proposed this thought experiment. Supposing, he says, you could only save an archbishop, who obviously benefits many, many people across his country then, England, or my chambermaid, who is a great benefit, but mainly only to me and my family. And he says, supposing the chambermaid even had been my wife or my mother, that would not alter the truth of the proposition that the life of the archbishop would still be more valuable than that of the chambermaid. And justice, pure, unadulterated justice, would still have preferred that which was most valuable. Utilitarians, those people, were, and were tempted to this, which is why I want to bring this warning along with Solomon this morning, who tend to set up this dichotomy, this choice, of putting one person's happiness against another person's, or one person's value against another person's. Right? We create different categories of people. Maybe it's one ethnicity against another ethnicity. Maybe it's citizens against immigrants. Right? Maybe it's women in the workforce. We heard this one recently in the news. Women in the workforce versus unborn children. We begin to create these categories. Well, who will bring about the most happiness in this world? We have to, if, 
to choose. It's in this context, sometimes you start hearing about overpopulation used in a way that sounds at first very thoughtful, but then you start digging a little bit and it's actually not too far from Ebenezer Scrooge's famous pronouncement of looking for ways to, to, to reduce the surplus population in the world. And there's different ways people propose to do that. Malcolm Muggeridge, been listening this last week to a fantastic, if you've never read his book, a little biography of Mother Teresa, called Something Beautiful for God. I'm listening to the audiobook of that. He, he took this thought experiment of Jeremy Bentham and his, Bentham and his friend, and he, and he took it further. He says, imagine we take a famous playwright, intellectual, somebody who's contributed to society, somebody for him like George Bernard Shaw, and then, and then put him on a raft next to a person with mental disabilities, who isn't gonna benefit very many people in his life is the implication. But there's only room on this raft for one person. In worldly terms, he says, the obvious course would be for the, the intellectual, George Bernard Shaw, to pitch the mental defective into the sea. Those are his words, not mine. And save himself to write more plays for the edification of mankind. He, he takes this thought experiment further in order to point to a reality that he experienced in interacting with Mother Teresa while he was interacting with her. Because she would go out into the streets and she would minister to lepers who no longer had a hand but just a stump and on their right hand they'd lost all their fingers and their nose had fallen off, ears were deteriorated. She was, she was ministering to little street children who were addicted to glue. She was finding uh, infants who had been abandoned on garbage heaps to bring them in. And her and the, she and the sisters there in Calcutta would, would care for them. And, and he said, imagine not George Bernard Shaw, but someone else who has helped thousands, who brought pleasure and happiness into the lives of thousands of people. Let's put Mother Teresa on that raft, along with a leper, along with an infant struggling for life. According to the, according to the invitation for us to pursue pleasure in this world, We were told that the, the most, the wisest course, if we're going to avoid pain and pursue pleasure in this world, would be for Mother Teresa Go through your 
categories. Go through your categories. We find in the end that it's us on the map. What did Jesus do? He didn't seek to avoid his own pain and pursue his own pleasure. That's not why he came to this earth. I see in this terrible thought experiment a beautiful picture of Jesus. Who he is and what he has done for every one of us. In his death. In his life on this earth. And in doing that, Jesus destroys this thought experiment, right? He turns the whole thing on his head. And he says, you're just on the wrong page entirely. You're just asking the wrong question. That thought experiment isn't reality because every person is made in the image of God. Every person is made to receive this invitation to come back into fellowship with me, Jesus says. When he says, Follow me. That invitation goes out to the leper, as well as the intellectual, right? It goes out to the street kids, as well as to the businessmen. It goes out to the citizens and to the immigrants. I'm going to step out here for a second. It goes out to both Republicans and Democrats, pushing each other off the raft, right? This invitation goes out to every one of us made in the image of God, fallen into the meaningless and frustration and futility of this world because of sin. And he gives us this invitation, follow me. Follow me, he says. Hope in me. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm, with this, I want to invite our worship team to come up as we bring our gathering to a close this morning. He says, I'm going to pre prepare a place for you, and when I come again, I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. This is a precious promise of Scripture. The place he is preparing, one place he describes it as a great house. He says, in my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. That means there's also room for you. It's not a raft where it only fits one or two people. There are many, many rooms, and I'm preparing a room, and your name is on that door, and you open it up, and you think, how did you know I liked those curtains? It's prepared just for you. Another place is described as a banqueting table, and Jesus says, many will come from east and west and will recline at the table. This table is overflowing with food, and there's a, there's a seat at the table for you, Jesus says. That's a, that's a table not in this life. It's a table that's being set in the life to come. Another place, there's described a new creation, a new city, a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down, a city, a place of security, a place of wealth and provision even when John tries to describe it for us in Revelation he can barely use words and even the words he does use barely make sense to us he says it's a city that's 1300 miles square and then it seems to be as high as it is wide what does that even mean he says it's 
each gate is like a single pearl. Where did you get those pearls? He says that the, the streets of the city are like pure gold. But then he says they're transparent like glass. What does that even mean? And down the center of the street, there flows a river of life, he says. And on each side of the river of life, the tree of life, or maybe we should say trees of life, whose fruit doesn't just come once a year, but every month, the fruit is growing on those trees. And the leaves on those trees are for the healing of the nations, that the nations can come and be healed and be reconciled and know peace. This is the world that Jesus promises is coming. This is not this world, in case you haven't noticed. This is not this world, but this is the world that's coming. And he invites us to follow him and put our hope not in this world, but in the world that is to come, so that we can live not in despair, right? Solomon warns us about that, but in hope. To live in hope. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lead us toward that. Thank you for this warning. We pray that you would help us, Lord, even as we walk through this consumer culture, to not be ruled by these little, these 4,000 little lies that meet us every day, that teach us to find our, our joy mainly in this world. Help us to follow you and to find our joy in the world that is to come. Our security and our identity that in the place that you are preparing for us, there you will bring us so that we can be with you. Lord, we ask because of your death and resurrection that you will lead us from today up to that day.